Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Dominic, you and I talked about in a previous episode how gold was sparked as money because of its beauty. And you, you delivered that great quote. I don't know who said it, but uh, quote, beauty is truth. Truth is beauty. And then we explored how a, another form of beauty is mathematical beauty. So E equals MC squared, like the elegance and simplicity of a, an all-encompassing mathematical formula. Um, I shared with you, I think, on text, the Bitcoin supply formula, which I find to be particularly elegantly beautiful. Um, and is, you know, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson and he describes beauty as something essential, like almost like food that the, the, the soul needs, the human spirit needs. Um, and he calls it a window into the transcendent and that connected for me to that, that quote, truth is beauty, beauty is truth, because it's almost like we we see things that are really relevant to our own, I guess in a Darwinian sense, you could say it's a fitness payoff, right? Whether it's a, a lush landscape or it's a beautiful woman, if you're a man, or it's um, maybe a, a, a beautifully crafted dish of food perhaps could be beautiful. Um, it's a little more tricky when you look at a work of art. It's like, I don't know what that's nourishing in us exactly, but th this, this yearning for an aesthetic pleasure, I guess. <clears throat> so how do you, how do you think about beauty? Like what, what is it? Is it, um, yeah. What is it? Well, um, I'm, I have this odd life, Robert, where these weird opportunities seem to come to me. And I found myself about four or five years ago presenting a TV series on Italian TV. I'm, I can speak Italian, but I presented it in English. Um, about It was a six-part series about beauty. Hmm. And I'd never thought of beauty at all before. And then I suddenly had to write an entire TV series, you know, six one-hour episodes, all about beauty. And it was 
talk about a dream job. The and it, Italians are much more aesthetically aware than than we are in England. And if you want a, um, evidence of that, just you look at how commonly the word bella or bello appears in Italian compared to how much we say beautiful in English. Like to an Italian, everything is bello, bello, oh, bello, bello. So mm. um, I just think they're just a more aesthetically aware people than, than certainly the British. And you just look at how well they dress and their architecture and all the rest of it and the style. But I was, so, so we did, and we went all the way around the world going to beautiful places <laughs> and filming pieces to camera. And it was just wonderful. Job. Yeah. And so, and we did a whole episode in Greece and um, I've sort of fell in love a little bit with Greece and we did a lot of in Venice. And then we went to um, Seoul. That's why I was in South Korea. And we, we, because that's the sort of center of the um, plastic surgery is in Seoul. So people I think something like 90% of the plastic surgery that takes place around the world, people go to Seoul for it. And it's bizarre because you've got all these sort of Russian women, um, uh, uh, basically Aryan women going there to try and make their eyes have a mm. bit more slinty and then you've got all the local women trying to have the slint taken out of their eyes and everyone wants to look different to how they look. But, um, so I sort of became a mini, mini expert in not, I won't use the word expert, but sort of reasonably informed about beauty. And we talked in the first episode about, um, us finding beautiful, you know, the Darwinian thing of us finding beautiful, something that is good for us in some way. Mm. So there's that landscape, the Pleistocene landscape on which mankind thrived, you know, the, the, the hills in the distance, the clearings, the trees, the animals, the water, all these things essential to our survival. We find that, that landscape beautiful. And the emotion that is triggered when we see something beautiful is the same emotion that mathematicians, mathematicians feel when they, you know, um, see a beautiful formula or they solve an equation. And I just wanted to read this, this quote. We talked about beauty and truth and Jordan, Jordan Peterson, I just love that guy. And I'm surprised he hasn't gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole sooner, but the, he talks as well about as well as beauty. He talks about truth, and I, I heard him mm. interview the other day with of all people Tucker Carlson, <laughs> and but he was talking about the need to be truthful, even if the truth is the harder thing to say, and it's easier right. in that moment to to just you know say a lie or a white lie or whatever. And but if you are truthful, the reality you create is based around your truth. So mm -hmm. even if in the short term, it's harder to utter the truth, ultimately it's for the good because what you create is, is based around your truth. And it was a wonderfully inspiring, you know, two minute talk that he gave, but there is this relationship between beauty and truth. And so, and, and you talked about the transcendent. So I'm just going to go to Plato, the old Greek philosopher, Plato who had this idea that, that what we see on earth is a shadow of the divine mm. and beautiful things are replicas of beauty itself. And we all, we're all born with knowledge, but we forget it <laughs> when mm. our souls are trapped in our body and learning is similar to remembering and appreciating beautiful things is the 
quickest thing you can do on the path to enlightenment, on the path to knowledge, to get back our transcendent self. Um, and so you need to, whether it's appreciating flowers or sunset or music mm. or people. And the next thing the ancient Greeks did is, is you have to reckon, the ancient Greeks actually tried to measure beauty. They had their golden ratio, uh, you know, the mathematical alignment and, and, and proportion and so on. And we're back to the importance of architecture here, beautiful architecture. And true wisdom, Occlude, according to um, Plato, was knowing beauty itself. That was the most enlightened state that somebody could reach. Um, so that, that's one little sort of um, chapter on beauty. They were quite um, looks fascist, if that's the right word, <laughs> the ancient <laughs> Greeks. They had this also, also this idea that your beauty was a gift from the gods. And if you were beautiful on the outside, it meant you had inner perfection too. Mm. Now, often beauty is a sign of health. So there's a sort of little bit of truth, but they felt that physical and moral beauty were linked. Now, if you look at the behavior of certain Hollywood stars, you'd say perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that's not, not the case. Yeah. But, but beauty on the outside meant beauty on the inside. Mm. And they actually had a word for this, or the Greeks still have a word for it, which is, Kalogagathia, Kalogagathia, which means beautiful and good. And, but there is something to it because if you look after your body, you looked after your mind. You look after your mind. And, and then that's a sort of, you know, like going to the gym and running and keeping fit, you feel better. Um, but if you, but Kalogagathia was especially linked to heroism and great deeds. It was like a sort of ancient chivalry. And it was something that ancient Greek heroes aspired to. They wanted this Kalogagathia. Mm. Now, I'm just going to turn now to Oscar Wilde on the subject of beauty. And this is a quote from his book, um, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And he says, Beauty is a form of genius, is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime or the reflection in the dark waters of that sil silver we shall call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has the divine right of sovereignty. It makes princes of those who have it. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the most persecuted group the most discriminated against group in society is it white people is it black people is it old is it young is it working class white men is it muslim what what it what is the uh do you know the answer to this uh no i don't is this along a racial dimension nope no um most discriminated i don't know maybe I mean, I would guess if we're talking about beauty, maybe the, the not physically beautiful people. Correct. Absolutely wow. correct. Well done, Robert. It hit the nail on the head. There's just an, an American economist called Daniel Hammermesh that's done studies on this. And he's found that if you put yourself in like the bottom 20% um, quintile, you know, 
of, of I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word ugly because it's such a horrible word mm -hmm. to describe a person as. Unattractive, perhaps. Unattractive, whatever yeah. word you want to use. But they get paid less. They get overlooked for jobs. When they do get jobs, they get overlooked for promotion. They are more likely to commit crimes because of the fact that they are less right. economically well off. When they do commit crimes, they get longer sentences and bigger fines. Oh, wow. They get overlooked for loan deals. And, you know, you hear this thing about microaggression and unconscious bias. They fall victim to that all the time. Um, and over the course, and as a result of this, they're more likely to be depressed um, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And so um, I, we sort of got, I got sidetracked a bit of that because I was more interested in the mathematical beauty of proportion and all that kind of thing, but it, mm. it is all connected. And, and, and so, um, but an interesting little uh, side note. No, it's very interesting. I've read too, I think, this was in maybe the Economist magazine years ago. They had that was the one dimension. Um, this was they were exploring. I guess symmetry was their measurement. So that was their yeah. their measurement for attractiveness is how facially symmetric you are. That the more symmetry you had, and then for um, for a man, it was the taller you are. Like your earnings and likelihood of socioeconomic success were very tightly correlated. For women, I think it was just looks, and for men, it was looks plus height. Um, yeah, the most commonly requested thing by women at sperm banks is men over six feet. Is tall, yeah. Is tall, and they. It doesn't matter intellect, race. It, none of that matters. Is height. It's the most by far and away. And I think the same applies on like Tinder. You know, they all say over six foot tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is so. So it's so interesting how close how close we are to this darwinian reality for ourselves right we can't yeah. you can't argue with it you can't reason it away you can't leg, you can't pass some legislation be like oh you should prefer guys under six feet or it's just we we're these yeah we're two-legged ceos of multinationals all tend to be are commonly all over six feet tall yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's right and you, so is that related to um terrestrial dominance or something like if you're on the battlefield you're a little taller so maybe you stand out more like what is that all about i guess it's stature Stat yeah strength and stature yeah um, I, I, I could i would just be speculating there i would so the the thing you mentioned earlier though with the italians like having a much stronger aesthetic sense than uh us you know let's say english speakers there's this uh concept called linguistic relativity um, I think it also goes by maybe the Wolf-Sapir hypothesis, where it actually says that the language you, you think in shapes the thoughts themselves. So if you, mm. if you think in a romance language, you tend to think more romantically overall, more aesthetically, versus if you're thinking in a, a, a more reductionist language like English or German, you tend to be a bit more precise and mechanical in your thinking. So I wonder if, if that... Um, that's just an interesting thing to think about. Like the, the language we speak is actually a technology itself. And there's some reflexivity between thinker and, and tech. Mm. I find it very interesting the way 
language evolves. And on the one hand, there's a sort of movement to control which words you can use mm-hmm. <laughs> and which words you can't, you know, you mustn't use, you know, and this, it's all part of that, uh, you know, offense culture and all that. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, you have to call a black guy a person of color or something, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. there's all these terminologies that involve, and if you use the wrong word or use an outdated word, then suddenly, you know, you're guilty of all sorts of hate crimes. You're like, Oh Christ, I just used the wrong word. Uh-huh. I'm not, I'm, I didn't actually intend any malice, but so there's that, but at the same time, language just constantly evolves and evolves yeah. and evolves. Mm-hmm. And you know, people try to regulate it, but it just keeps on evolving. And, you know, the English we speak today is is so different from the English, you know, when you listen to people talking from little video clips from the 1950s or somebody, little vox pops from the 1950s, and just people spoke so differently then and, and how people spoke a hundred years ago. And, and the, you know, the difference between American English and English English we English English we tend to use much more conditionals and and we I think we use more tenses mm-hmm. American English is probably a little bit simpler than English English mm. and and that's probably a result of so many people from so many different cultures congregating um in America you know and and the language probably simplified a little bit because for so many people it was their second language mm-hmm. um and but it's 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 wonderful how language just absorbs everything you throw at it and just it's just a sort of continuous evil evolving it just never stops evolving and you know there's mm-hmm. my kids i've got 20 and 18 year old and 16 year old kids but the 20 and the 18 year old just use words i've never heard before yeah you know sort of london slang and so on and it just it's amazing and then you get like in the UK, we have um, huge immigration in the last 20 or 30, 40 years, with huge immigration from Asia and Africa to the UK. And so you'll have people uh, who speak some African language or some, you know, Pakistani, some Asian language, and their parents speak that language and barely speak any English. And then uh, as a people, those are, you know, those are, there's essentially genetically that person is, is African or Pakistani, but he speaks English like, well, I was going to say like an Englishman, but he is an Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) Do you see what I mean? But he's speaking and it's, it's, it's sort of, I don't want to say not his genetic language, but does he feel that he's not, he's still, you know, that the, the language he's using is probably shaping his thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it's not his, I don't even know what the word is. It's not his um, native tongue. Or... Well, it is his native tongue, but it's not his genetically ah, native. Yeah. yeah tongue, genetically native tongue. I mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't I think genetics the wrong word. I don't even, I, I'm struggling to articulate it, but I think you, you understand what I mean. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. I just, I, it's, I just find it very interesting. And, what are the, I'd love it if somebody could explain what all the, the psychology and what all the processes are. What all the yeah. People. Yeah. It's just, the, another thing I've noticed. I don't know if you've noticed this as much as the, the, the technological realities that we're living in 
start to reshape the language too. So you'll you'll notice yes. a lot of these phrases creeping into the modern age. People are like, you know, let's do a download real quick. You know, they're talking about um, just sharing maybe an idea, but they're using a term that we really just got from computers recently. Mm, um, dump. Brain dump. Yeah, brain dump. Like, uh, <coughs> I'm struggling to think of a number of examples. I meant to make a list of these because I hear them all the time. And I'm like, there's another one. People are... Uh, My daughter will say lol rather than laugh. Yeah, LOL. Yeah. Or so yeah, sometimes I'll leave the room and I'll be like BRB. You know, that all comes from <laughs> being on the computer, which is silly. But um, yeah, there's just such a, and this is just an underappreciated aspect of existence, I think, is this reflexivity. You know, we mentioned earlier Churchill, the buildings we make in turn make us, you know, the tools we make in turn shape us. Like there's a, there's a co-evolution between creator and created where we, we create a certain tool for a job, but then that tool by virtue of using it over a long period of time actually shapes our evolution and adaptation back. So it, there's this, there's the, all it's feedback loops everywhere you look, you know, um, how, so that's a really interesting thing. So my, I, what I can't, what I struggle with is so back to beauty is it seems like we're identifying beauty based on a fitness, a Darwinian fitness payoff to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Those tend to be things we find beautiful, but how does art fit into that equation? Like, it seems like art is something, it's one of the most valuable objects in the world. If you look at some of these, you know, um, super rare paintings that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, what's going on there. There's like, there's all this history and um, narrative collapse into this one artifact that we call, you know, maybe a, a Michelangelo painting or a Leonardo painting. How, what is the relationship between beauty and art? Well, there's definitely a, an emotion that people feel, a sensation that people go through when they experience beauty, when they see something beautiful. You know, my mum will say, you'll see a photograph of some you know, Audrey Hepburn or something when she was young and she'll go, oh, she was so beautiful. And you'll see a beautiful painting. And so I guess the, one of the values of that art is that it, it, it inspires this emotion of, of beauty. But then again, you can feel that same emotion just by looking at a beautiful landscape. You don't need to pay a million dollars. So I think the value of art and also now it's very interesting is, is art and beauty have gone separate ways with a lot of modern art. Yeah. It, it, it quite deliberately isn't beautiful. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's a, another symptom of a broken fiat society. Yeah. In fact, I rather think it is. Yeah. But you know, there's the story of the guy who just had the bricks and he sold them for X million dollars. And you look at Tracy Emin's stuff and it definitely art inspires emotion, but I have to say, I would only be buying that kind of art if I had money to throw away. And a lot of the time it's, there's, there's, there's money laundering and all sorts of other reasons why it goes on. Yeah. It's not just about that. And it's a status symbol as well. Yeah. But that, that said, you know, I buy art all the time if I like it. I, I can I can see that right behind you. In my praise. <laughs> yeah, and, and well, this and and I like to think I create it as well. Yeah. So, um, 
so I, I, I can't necessarily explain the value of, of, of top art, except to say that, that it's, a lot of it is beautiful and it keeps its value. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad the, investment, you know? Yeah. The, um, the relationship between modern art and fiat, I, I learned this from Joseph Campbell. I think he said that roughly that the, the job of the artist is to mythologize the present for future generations. So that when we look back on the art of the time, we saw, we can see the zeitgeist of the time embodied in these, these artifacts. And that's what I would, I think actually modern art, which is this, you know, a lot of it's trash, frankly, it's bananas duct tape to the canvas or whatever. It's this, it is mythologizing the current consumerist society that fiat currency has induced. So I don't even think it's bad art necessarily. I think they're doing a good job of depicting what's, what state the world is in. We're in this poisoned mm. consumerist high time preference I think, mindset. I think that's absolutely right. And um, the... Um, uh, that's a lovely quote about it. it's myth mythology. I think if if some of the old great artists saw the art of today and they saw the society we're in today, you know, gr great empires at the pinnacle of the empire, they're also, also at their most beautiful, uh -huh. certainly architecturally. Um, but there's, the, I think they would consider what's going on almost heretical. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a relationship but in mathematics between beauty and truth mm -hmm. and and the greeks thought there were three ingredients to beauty symmetry proportion and harmony mm. and beauty was something to be worshiped idealized but also imitated and reproduced in lives in architecture in education and in politics and that was very much the the attitude of, of the ancient Greeks. And I will say the one perhaps, I mean, it was such a great society, ancient Greece, because as, as well as this worship of beauty, taxation was voluntary. Right. The liturgy. The liturgy, as we've yeah. said. So I, I think there is this, but um, Greek citizens felt tremendous responsibility, to use that word again, mm -hmm. towards their society which perhaps we don't feel today yeah so again you 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 shape it by the way you tax it or the taxes i mean there's there's so much crossover it's diff, diff, difficult to know which comes first yeah uh, i wonder too this so this relationship between the money and you know, I guess you would say that the beauty that we produce or the beauty of our productions, is this something that, I mean, I've heard this reference by authors like Safety and in his book, he talks about, um, yeah, essentially how we, ever since we've gone to a fiat currency paradigm that art has suffered and you can see it in modern art. Is this something that the ancients ever talked about or explored? Was, is there, was Plato, I, I haven't read much Plato. I've read some Aristotle, not a lot of Plato, was there any exploration of this parallel between the character of the money and what we see in society? They probably didn't know any better because I guess they were always on hard money standards. 
Yeah, I I don't I don't I don't know. Mm. I think they were on I think they were on hard money standards, but the I've just I'm just going to just change tack for a second, Rob. Yep. Coming back to this idea of the Greeks and the beauty and this and the transcendental. The um the middle okay so jordan peterson likes his myths so let's tell you a myth mm. daedalus was one of the greatest craftsmen in ancient athens and he um built the labyrinth for king minos of crete uh, you know the story of the theseus and the minotaur um but then he then gave ariadne the ball of string which she gave to theseus that helped him defeat the Minotaur. Mm -hmm. And so King Minos of Crete imprisoned Daedalus and then Daedalus made some wings um, uh, out of wax and feathers. And that was how he and his son Icarus were going to escape on these wings. And he kept saying to his son, fly the middle course between the spray of the sea and the heat of the sun. Mm. Fly the middle course. Mm. And Icarus didn't listen to his dad and he flew. He got it all excited because he was flying and he flew too high and the sun melted the wax of his wings and he fell into the sea and died. And that middle way between the sea and the sun mm. was beauty. Mm. And Socrates said something similar. He said, a man must know to choose the mean and avoid the um, uh, avoid the extremes. And Plato with his Republic, he said the ideal Republic would be somewhere a mean between monarchy and democracy. Mm. And Aristotle was always going on about this middle state. And so there's this idea, and then you, have, then you have the golden mean, the Greeks called it beauty, but you keep getting this idea of the golden mean, moderation, Confucius, Buddha, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Mm -hmm. um, there's all this, this middle way of moderation and calmness and, and, and to the ancient Greeks, I think that was one of the things that they felt was beauty. Yeah. This, and so this, this um, reminds me of the, the way actually in Taoism, where they're always talking yeah. about this middle it's, I guess Peterson would say it's, the edge of order and chaos, right? That's where meaning is found. That's where beauty is found. That's where the entrepreneur exists, by the way. You know, yeah. the, the entrepreneur has got one foot in order, which is the society that he's updating or trying to update through his explorations and one foot in chaos, which is some new business idea or venture that he's, you know, taking risk. He's putting his money and capital into the game, trying to figure out something new. So there's this, it's like we are these exploratory creatures that need we need it like it's like surfing right you have this optimal experience you have the flow state when you're upright on the surfboard you're in order you're in stable order but you're riding right on the edge of disaster you're yeah. literally surfing the edge of disaster on the wave and that's where you know that that analogy can be applied i guess to any domain of that's life that's exactly where, where Icarus needed to be Right, the middle way between yeah. the ocean and the sun, and um, that seems to be related 
to, to beauty as well, because that, you know, we could say, you know, time flies when you're having fun kind of thing, or when you're in a flow state, like that's, that's life lived beautifully. I, I think mm-hmm. we, we would all want to be in a flow state as much as possible. I think it's probably why surfers report such high levels of satisfaction with life. It's like, they're quite actually out there all the time. Is that right? I didn't know that. Are you a surfer yourself? No, I'm a novice. Uh, you know, I really want to get more into it for all the reasons we're laying out here, but yeah, it's um, professional surfers have one of the highest reported job satisfactions in the world. Oh wow! Uh, yoga, yoga teachers as well. I think it was another one, but okay. Um, makes sense. You know, it's like <laughs> Bitcoin maximalists in a bull market. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about order and chaos. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I know there is. There's. Just, we're recording this interview, by the way, the day after the infamous Elon Musk tweets sent the right. Bitcoin market yeah. into mayhem. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? Like, as far as the why and where he's coming from, I think a lot of people might be reading a bit <clears throat> more into it. You know, a lot of people are assuming. Some people are saying he's pumped the market up so that he could sell he, he, and then you know now now he's sold he's pumping it down a lot of people are saying he's trying to secure grants so he's buying favor for himself mm-hmm. um by uh criticizing the environmental <clears throat> cost of bitcoin one has to assume he's done at least a little bit of research into it and so it's possible that his criticism whether right or wrong, it's possible that it is genuine. He probably thinks too many fossil fuels are burnt in the in the um, um, creation or the mining of Bitcoin. And I mean, I know I know something like is it seventy five percent of Bitcoin mining is renewable energy? I've 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 read. I'm not sure how yeah. true that is. Yeah, I think there's a reason. If there's a lot of coal gets burned in China to make Bitcoins, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's correct. There's a there's a report published recently by Square that goes into that um, the the percentage of renewals, but I think it's around seventy percent. Yeah, in that, in that case, what's his problem? And you know, there's really clever ways. You know, I subscribe to the the whole. Um, you know, as as mankind has advanced, he has consumed more energy. Mm-hmm. He just has. And, you know, in the agricultural revolution, he got animals to do the work for him. And then in Mm -hmm. the industrial revolution, he got machines to do the work for him. And those machines have got steadily more power. You know, it's, it's the amount of energy you use is almost a sign of how far you've come. It it measures civilization. Yeah. And, and, you know, the more energy we use, the, the better we will get at, at using energy well and safely and in right. ways that are unharmful. And, you know, that Alex Eckstein book about the moral case for fossil fuels, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of really important, strong arguments that he makes that where there's a great deal of truth to it. Maybe Elon Musk just needs to be sat down for a couple of hours and be forced to watch Michael Saylor videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get I get the sense that he's just playing a lot of games at a lot of different levels. And, you know, he, one of his biggest revenue sources is government subsidy and government grants. Mm. So he probably had to throw him a bone to some extent. I, 
Um, yeah, I, I don't mean, know. Even, but, you, 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 at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're in the sway of your paymaster. That's right. No man is better than his incentives. And at the end of the day, Elon's primary revenue source, <clears throat> it seems, is is the fiat spigot, right? Whether it's government subsidy or mm. just um, dollar payments. So he's. We talked about that book, Secrets of the One Percent, and how the the richest people in history have usually made their money through getting legislation made in their favor. Mm-hmm. And he is straight out of the copybook. Right, right. So he I has to he has to appeal to the enviro socialist to yeah. get his favorable legislation. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I blocked him on Twitter as. Uh, as you- <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a because I don't know. I kind of admired the guy originally, but now he's so wishy washy and all over the place, and he just seems like it's hard to to distinguish whether he's trolling or serious and i don't i've just yeah i mean i think he likes he likes he certainly likes attention he's got a big ego i think you have to have a big ego to be that to get that successful he likes the attention and he obviously sees himself as a comedian you know he wanted to get on saturday night live and he likes doing all these little doge memes which he probably has someone write for him (laughs) and he probably gets off on the little um, buzz we all get off on when you put something on Twitter and it gets retweeted a hundred times. Everyone gets their little, whatever yeah. that dopamine rush is. And he seems to need that as much as the next man. Yeah. Which just contradicts all of this higher mission he seems to bring to the table where he's talking about needing to go to Mars to save civilization. It's like, you would think he would understand the relationship between civilization and energy usage. Right. We actually, you know, if, I was on a, if I was on a ship flying to Mars, I'd rather Michael Saylor was flying it than Elon Musk. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, yeah, it, I don't know. It's, but that, because the energy aspect of Bitcoin is so nuanced, that's going to be the number one attack vector, I think, yep. for these fudsters. 100%. And it's not going to stop. Um, so that's where education is especially important. Um, yeah, Bitcoin's really vulnerable there. That yeah. is, you're absolutely right. That is, like I've done my little bit in that argument. I've made my little videos and I've written my articles explaining Bitcoin energy consumption. And Nick Carter does it well. Yeah. Um, Marty Bent does it very well. Yeah. And what can you do? You just got to make the argument. And if they ban, but they, you know, they can ban Bitcoin mining. It's vulnerable. I can't see there being a. A, an international ban on Bitcoin mining, but I can certainly see them trying it. You know, Bitcoin gets too too successful and there's inflation and fiat monies are collapsing. You know, blame Bitcoin mining. Yeah, yeah, they will. Same way that, I know it sounds ridiculous to make, you know, in, in, economic, in times of economic crisis, the most ridiculous accusations get made and the most ridiculous people get blamed for stuff. Right. And I, yeah, that, the, I think that's the biggest threat to Bitcoin, as I think about it now, mm. is, you know, fiat currency, um, I won't say collapse because it just never happens, but major run on fiat currency, hyper-Bitcoinization, concerted, you know, UN ban on Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, and they won't attack Bitcoin holders, they won't attack Bitcoin owners, they'll attack Bitcoin mining. Yeah. 
Yeah. How screwed would Bitcoin mining be if China banned it? Well, they've made attempts in the past. The one, I guess the defensive mechanism that Bitcoin mining has is that it's just, you know, a miner is this big, basically, right? They're just little modular miners. So if you try to ban it in one place, you can really just pack them up, put them in a box, ship them elsewhere, plug them back in. So it's a very amorphous and adaptive network. Mm-hmm. But it's also very hard to trace where Bitcoin mining is occurring. I mean, they can trace the energy consumption patterns. Um, but again, it's just kind of like whack-a-mole. You try to shut down one data center that's mining Bitcoin, they get boxed up and sent elsewhere. Um, and then again, if your country, it's again, more likely they would tax it, right? Because there's a revenue, there's a huge revenue opportunity there. Mm-hmm. So if you just outright ban it, then you're eliminating the tax base from your jurisdiction and you're incentivizing other jurisdictions to pick it up. But to your point, if it gets if it gets to that level where it is determined to be an existential threat at an international scale, there could be a coordinated ban, coordinated effort against it. Um, there are people are still found, right? There'll be let, let citadels with armed guards. The system, like I, I remember meeting a guy from Malaysia three or four years ago who was trying to set up a Bitcoin mining operation in Bhutan. Mm. And, and it was a hydroelectric thing. I wanted to put some money into it. I don't know what happened to him. He probably he disappeared. So he's probably, he was probably a scoundrel, <laughs> but you, I looked at the economics of it and that, you know, they've got shed loads of hydroelectricity in Bhutan mm-hmm. and, you know, are they going to be able to enforce Bitcoin mining bans in Bhutan? I don't think so. That's the thing is the, the Bitcoin mining network becomes like the energy buyer of last resort. And there's going to always be this incentive to plug the thing in and monetize unused energy, right? Or, or, or what they also call stranded energy, where it doesn't, it's not economically feasible to harness the energy and ship it to the grid or sell it into the grid because of um, maybe it's remote remoteness from the grid. Um, so just, there's like this intrinsic component of demand there that I don't think you can legislate away. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see see it play out. You know, by that time, somebody will figure out a way to use tidal power in their in their citadel mm. that they've got in the middle of between Nigeria and Brazil, and they'll be mm. using tidal wave power to mine bitcoins or something. You know, right? And the rate at the rate solar is collapsing too. The cost curve of solar is collapsing faster than any other energy source. It seems like that would be something that would really pick up too, that you just have this off-grid Bitcoin mining via solar. Maybe. I I looked into solar quite a bit about 10 years ago. Maybe it sorted itself out. But solar's been one of these technologies that's been promising great things since the 1970s, and it just never seems quite to nail it. Maybe well, it eventually will, because ultimately the sun's the best energy source of yeah. the lot. So maybe eventually yeah. it will. There's always something that gets in the way. There's a bit of a gradually then suddenly thing there going on with solar um, where it's, again, its cost has been exponentially declining every year over year. So now it's getting to the point where it is, I think it's already the cheapest source of energy, certain types of solar, and it's getting Mm. cheaper faster than everything else. So um, a lot of the long-term energy guys I've talked to, they said solar is the long game. Okay. And so if you're solar, then you've decentral- you're decentralized from the grid, which makes it even harder to track, regulate, and all of that. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, you can start up a mine in bloody Chad. No one's yeah. going to have caused it there in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Yeah, exactly. And then th talk about a counter argument to Elon's FUD. It's like Bitcoin then becomes the greatest incentive in the world to set up renewable energy centers mm. via solar. Um, but yeah, I don't know. In, in the meantime, it's it's confusing. The other element we don't talk about a lot is really and Rothbard has written a great deal about this to protect against pollution. What you really need is sound private property rights. So if you're polluting my river and I've got property rights in the river, I'll sue you. And so long as those property rights are enforced, you'll have a disincentive to pollute the river. So it prevents tragedies of the commons when you have mm. private property rights. Yeah. And you know, the most wasteful, like I'm more like Bitcoin mining is efficient. It graduates to where energy is cheapest. Mm. It graduates to where energy in many cases wouldn't even be used if the Bitcoin mm. mining thing wasn't there, it'd just be thrown away. And then you look at how wasteful governments are like, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, our, the, the UK's NHS and its education systems, and I'm sure any number of government departments in America, uh, and I bet the, you, the military, I, bet, I, I dread to think of the environmental oh, harm caused by God. the US military. And, you know, so you sort your own waste out, folks, and then you come lecturing everyone else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no more. I tweeted that out. There's, there's nothing more wasteful than war. Right. You're mobilizing yeah. capital and people to go and destroy capital and people. And then there's all these other second, you know, the landmines. You don't even get loot anymore. In the old days, at least you get loot at the end of it. Right. It's quite a good business. You don't, can't loot the country after you've bombed it anymore. Yeah. How the world has changed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they'll loot the gold still. I mean, yeah. At least they were in World War II, but. That's another great losing the oil in a way in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah, looting the oil and the, the trade flows. Um, but there, there, there's another beneficial aspect of Bitcoin is if you're on a Bitcoin standard, it's really hard to loot. Yeah, really hard to loot the Bitcoin. So, well, yeah, but there's there's hacking. Yeah, but if you just assumed you're on a Bitcoin standard and say we still have central banks, you know, assuming that Bitcoin's kept in a really sophisticated multi-signature scheme, like you could go and invade a country and conquer them, but you're not going to get their money. You're not going to take their money. Mm. Um, you could, it's just different than gold, right? Gold invites yeah, violence. Yeah. Bitcoin actually disincentivizes, disincentivizes violence or makes violence less economically re rewarding. Mate, you'd have to go back for Bitcoin. You'd have to go back to the Dengeld model, uh, Alfred the Great's Dengeld model, which was, uh, uh, I won't invade you, but I want you to pay me a Bitcoin every month and I won't mm. invade you. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> At least it keeps the peace. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but as R Roger Kipling said, if you don't get, if you don't get rid of the Dengeld, you won't get rid of the Dane. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder what that, I was thinking about that too, what that would look like. Because there's a, um, a case to be made that, well, clearly inflation is used to fund warfare typically. That's typically mm -hmm. when countries go off the gold standard or or eliminate gold redeemability is when they need to print a bunch of money and go to war. So if you're on a, a Bitcoin standard, say, say on a Bitcoin standard and there's a US-China war 
China's the invader, US is the defender, China would then need to inflate their money supply to pay for the war, but then that would cause a lot of Bitcoin to flow out of China, right? Because they've inflated the money supply. Um, similar to the way gold, right? If you if you abuse monetary policy historically, gold was a natural check on that because then gold would flow out of your country. Mm -hmm. And at some point, um, you know, you'd just be be kept in check um, from a monetary policy standpoint. So then that would mean your country is becoming less wealthy more rapidly <clears throat> the more aggressive you are in warfare. And that would accrue an even greater defender's advantage. So, I, yeah, I just wonder how that would operate. Um, I'm going to try to write something about that, but still thinking through it. How um, much do you think the Chinese authorities get gold? Uh, sorry, get Bitcoin. Now, let's assume, you know, we talked about how much gold China has. Yeah, yeah. And we assume that it's deliberate and they're deliberately understating it because they don't want to shine too brightly and they get the value of gold and they want to increase their gold holdings and lower their US dollar holdings. And they do feel they are the right, the best people in the world. And at some point <clears throat> they will want to be, you know, top dog in the world, but they're they're waiting for the right time to do that. How, I mean, do you think whoever the Chinese state planner is, like I can assure you that most government ministers in the UK won't have read my book on Bitcoin and they won't have read Safe Dean's book, mm. book on Bitcoin and they won't listen to your podcast. Do you think, you know, Chinese policymakers get Bitcoin or are they in the wrong side of 50 and it's just some young people's fad? Um, I would anticipate that the general state level understanding of bitcoin in china and in other countries is probably proportionate to bitcoin's market cap actually like the bigger it gets the more threatening it is the more seriously they're taking it the more closely they're studying it but i do have this um theory that I've shared before that I, I really think the value proposition of Bitcoin is not that complicated, especially if you're a state actor and you understand the value of gold, like clearly China does. It's like when you start getting to the nuts and bolts of well, why do we value gold, right? You start to see the, the first principles or properties of money and you evaluate Bitcoin through that same lens, that it quickly becomes apparent that this is a potential disruptor, at least to gold. And at that point, it's like, why wouldn't you just have some of this thing as an insurance policy? If it, if it does succeed, right, you would want some exposure to both asset classes. So I don't know today. I don't know where their level of understanding is, but I would guess that it increases as Bitcoin's market cap increases. Okay. I, I certainly agree with that. So it's a slightly loaded question why I was asking you that. But my, you, you know, my theory is, is that when an empire rises, its money is sound mm -hmm. and when it falls yep. its money isn't yeah and i mean so I, I can't claim that theory everyone has that theory yep. but china is an empire that's rising and no matter what you might think of china and 
its record on human rights and some of its authoritarianism. I imagine that things done by the early Roman Empire or the British or whatever were just as bad. And as they get wealthier, perhaps the Chinese will become, you know, more humane because I think mm -hmm. we, we, the wealthier we get, the better we behave mm -hmm. uh, is a general characteristic of humans. Mm -hmm. So, but if, so if we assume that its money will be sound as it grows, is it deliberate? Is it, Watching Bitcoin perhaps acquiring a little bit, is it, does it, is it quite happy for whatever it is, 70, 80, 90% of Bitcoin mining to take place within its borders? Is that part of its plan or is that just a sort of accidental lucky thing that's happened? You know, I, I would imagine they probably start to look at it as kind of a free option in a way. It's like Bitcoin mining is occurring here. So we're, it's more easy for us to tax it, you know, and, and, and maybe even, you know, they've built a ton of energy infrastructure in China too, right? This whole debt miracle of building all these dams and these empty cities. So they, with Bitcoin mining operating as an energy buyer of last resort, it seems like a very easy way for them to monetize a lot of that surplus mm -hmm. capacity. Um, I don't know if they've realized that yet. I don't know if they're doing it, but um, yeah, the, just the value proposition of digital gold plus uh, a, a source of a way to monetize excess energy, which they have plenty of, seems like a natural fit for for China to improve its its geopolitical status. Mm. But the, in the long run, again, I still see it like again, Bitcoin dissolving these power structures from within because the more it grows, the more most of the monetary premium in the world is on a system that no one can change the rules of. And that's the name of the game. If you're on the state is you're bending the rules of the, the monetary and tax system to favor yourself and disfavor everyone else. But now all of a sudden you're trapped within this game that you can't change the rules. So it starts to change the very concept of China and the CCP and mm. uh, these other centralized bodies of power over time. But, but I don't know. I mean, that's all theoretical, right? This is just me like trying to game it out of my own mind. We don't have any historical corollary for this. Um, but I do think it's a deficiency in a lot of people's thinking where they just think China will persist as this single indivisible unit on into the future. And so it's all like, what will China's Bitcoin strategy be? And failing to account for the, the disaggregation that occurs within the power structure as a result of Bitcoin existing. Um, and it, it, you know, the, the historical parallel there is, is the USSR basically it got, yeah. it was economically outcompeted by the US. So what happened? It the power structure broke, it fragmented back into a lot of its old uh, previously conquered territories and countries um, and just dissolved in a way. So I would say that's more likely to happen to the US at the moment than it is very, to China. Very likely to happen in the US. Yeah, because we're way more indebted. So Rudyard Kipling was an English poet who wrote, among other things, The Jungle Book, the film that was, you know, adapt, famously adapted by Disney. And um, he's sort of the, the, the favourite poet of the English, and he wrote a great poem called If. And, but the context of this was the Danegeld, which was the money 
that King Alfred the Great used to pay off the Danish invaders with. But in telling the story of this poem, he, um, it has a much wider significance than just that tax. Um, it, it sort of, it's one of those things, he describes the tax, but it applies to all of life. Anyway, here we go. Danegeld by Rudyard Kipling. It is always a temptation to an armed and agile nation to call upon a neighbour and to say, we invaded you last night, we are quite prepared to fight unless you pay us cash to go away. And that is called asking for Danegeld, and the people who ask it explain that you've only to pay them the Danegeld and then you'll get rid of the Dane. It is always a temptation for a rich and lazy nation to puff and look important and to say, though we know we should defeat you, we have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away. And that is called paying the Danegeld, but we've proved it again and again, that if once you have paid him the Danegeld, then you never get rid of the Dane. It is wrong to put temptation in the path of any nation, for fear they should succumb and go astray. So when you are requested to pay up or be molested, you will find it better policy to say, we never pay anyone, Dane Geld, no matter how trifling the cost, for the end of that game is oppression and shame, and the nation that pays it is lost. There you go. Wow. Cool poem, huh? That is awesome. It's the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah, well, I'm going to be putting that in one of my next written pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah, but it applies to anyone trying to take somebody else hostage. Right. Yeah, this is the, you know, the, the US, we don't negotiate with terrorist policy. Yeah, I suppose so. Sort of right. You just don't, you won't be extorted. Don't be extorted or you'll be extorted some more. Never give terrorists the oxygen of publicity was the famous Margaret Thatcher line. Ah, uh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> 